Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Lillian Lee on her debut novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant. Lillian Lee is from the DC metro area and lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Her work has appeared in Granta, Guernica, Bon Appetit and Jezebel, and her debut novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant which was long-listed for the 2019 Women's Prize for Fiction, is just recently out in paperback. Lillian, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here and talking with you. First of all, how would you describe the novel? Yeah, so basically Number One Chinese Restaurant takes place in an upscale Peking Duck restaurant outside DC. And it looks at the family that owns the restaurant, the Hans, as well as their longtime employees. And what happens when this restaurant, the Beijing Duck House, uh, one summer uh, suddenly, you know, a tragedy befalls this beloved neighborhood establishment. And this in many ways, working family finds they no longer have both a place of business and also, for better or worse, a second home to return to anymore. Can you describe for us the the Beijing Duck House? It's a place that's absolutely central to the novel, despite the fact that it doesn't survive very far into it. <laughs> right, right. I think that in some ways, the Beijing Duck House doesn't totally fit into you know, the first image that you get when you hear Chinese restaurant, which often tends to be, at least in America, a takeout joint, right? So brightly lit and, you know, a fairly small storefront, a place where you really just kind of pop in, pop out. And what the Beijing Duck House is instead is actually, you know, they think of themselves as a fancier establishment. So there's tablecloths, you know, on all the tables, there's red lanterns, there's plush carpets, you know, it's very ornate, it's very uh, ornamental, but at the same time, there aren't really windows in this restaurant. There aren't really, uh, not really good lighting uh, to hide, you know, kind of the stains in that plush carpet. And so in some ways, the Beijing Duck House both is upscale and at the same time is uh, a bit on the dingier side. So it's kind of consistently both extremes of what we think of a Chinese restaurant and we think of as, you know, the sort of oriental dream of of a Chinese restaurant. And uh, one of the things that makes this restaurant's myth is the fact that on every wall of the restaurant, there are rows and rows of photographs with the 
uh, first owner, the father of the family, Bobby Hahn, uh, with all these politicians, with all these actors and um, presidents who have come through. I think at one point, you know, the book mentions that there's a picture of John Travolta. Um, and, and that sort of continues to create this idea that, you know, the Beijing Duck House was once a really, you know, influential place and might still be. Uh, but in fact, that was decades ago. Uh, and there hasn't really been as many politicians, as many actors coming through since then. The novel talks about the, I guess, the conditions for the workforce in a place like this, the characters that work in the restaurant, the structure of the hours, um, the demands on their lives and their bodies. Did you ever work in one yourself? So I think it def- I definitely have to mention that before I wrote this novel, I happened to work in a Chinese restaurant, also a Beijing duck house, also you know outside DC. And I worked there as a waitress for just under a month, the summer before I started writing this novel. And, you know, I ultimately quit because I really couldn't handle the physical and emotional challenge of working at a Chinese restaurant. But in those four weeks that I worked there, I was really struck by, well, for one, just how punishing the work was in the fact, in the sense that, you know, unlike maybe American restaurants, um, there weren't quite a lot of labor laws being foreseen to. So, you know, People had to work six days a week. There was, you know, you couldn't compromise on that. You had to work forced double shifts, so lunch and dinner shift. Sometimes you didn't get a break, especially on the weekends. And so, you know, all of these uh, circumstances made for really difficult work, but also a kind of suffocating environment where you really just couldn't leave. Your entire life was in this restaurant. But what also struck me was because in so many ways, uh, my coworkers at the restaurant had been with this restaurant for a long time. They had kind of created their own substitute world inside the space. And they had, you know, these bonds with each other and these friendships that felt so different from the friendships that I, you know, had known before. And, you know, it just really got me thinking about what exactly happens when, you know, work and in your personal life, the boundaries between the two are completely split off and blurred. Uh, And it just seemed like a really rich place to explore how people can adapt to really any kind of circumstance. And yet at the same time, what how they're inevitably changed by those adaptations. And why did you want to write about a restaurant as the, the sort of central world of the story? Tell us something about the centrality of the of the restaurant to the immigrant experience, both as a workplace, a business, but also also, I guess, as a community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I think that some of the things that I was thinking through while while writing this was, you know, what exactly the, the trauma of immigrating, right, coming, leaving the country that you have known your entire life uh, into a completely foreign country where the language is foreign, the culture is foreign, the people are foreign to you, you know, that necessarily is traumatizing. And what does that end up uh, doing to a person? And I think, you know, the Chinese restaurant was one way to explore that those consequences of immigration, because I think this is, you know, this is all anecdotal, but uh, pretty much every Chinese immigrant that I have known who didn't come over for education, and even those who did have have done a stint in a Chinese restaurant. That's really kind of the first job you get as a Chinese immigrant in America is you work at a Chinese restaurant. And it interested me in, in to thinking, you know, most people leave the restaurant after a year or two once they find a more steady job, something that isn't quite as hard on the body. And yet, of course, there are also immigrants who stay in that space. And I, I really wanted to question, you know, what makes somebody stay in that environment 
even though they don't have to, right? They could find other work, they could make a different life. But what about, you know, maybe the trauma of immigrating makes it easier to stay in an environment that while suffocating is also comfortable in its way. Can you say something about Rockville, Maryland, which is the town in which the novel is set? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Rockville is pretty much my hometown. I lived in kind of the adjoining town over Gaithersburg, but, you know, they're so close together that it, it really felt like my haunts as well. And one of the really unique things about my hometown that I didn't realize until I moved away to Michigan was that uh, it has a very, very high Asian American population. And in fact, the neighborhood that I grew up in, I I looked at the statistic later, uh, one in three people is Asian American, which is really shocking. But you know, when I looked back on my childhood, I was always in some ways, pretty much part of the majority, there were always a lot of Chinese and, and Asian American children in my grade. And it it felt in many ways like, you know, I was part of the norm. And so I'd always been interested in, you know, what happens, uh, especially when writing about race, especially when writing about, you know, marginalized communities, uh, what happens when you take the sort of force that's marginalizing these people. So, you know, in this case, let's say white America or or non-immigrants and just focus on the community itself, because, you know, the community itself will also have uh, power imbalances, right? Shady things happening. There's a lot to critique inside the communities um, that, you know, oftentimes doesn't, we don't get the chance to really look at because if there's a larger antagonist, right, a larger oppressive force that ends up, you know, taking all the spotlight. And so by setting this restaurant in Rockville, uh, where there are so many Asian Americans, where there, in fact, are so many different kinds of Chinese restaurants, I felt this freedom to write about this specific Chinese restaurant, these specific people working in the Chinese restaurant without feeling like I was making any larger statements about Asian Americans, about Chinese restaurants. At some point in the novel, it's not giving too much away to say that the, the restaurant goes on fire. And I wanted to talk about how you researched fire investigation. In general, I tend to be a little bit on the lazier or more timid side uh, when it comes to doing research. Uh, I do like to rely on imagination whenever possible, um, rather than going out and finding people to talk to because you know I, I do have a phobia of talking to strangers sometimes, uh, especially if I'm asking them strange questions. And uh, you know, I think if the fire had not been really the foundation on which the entire story is built on, I might have tried to just make it up as well. But the thing was, was that I understood that I had never experienced a fire before. I'd only seen it in movies. And so when I wrote the first fire scene, it felt like I was describing a movie, you know, scene. And I didn't like that feeling of of artifice. Uh, And I felt that the entire story would feel less authentic if I didn't really try to understand how a fire is set and what it feels like to be next to a fire. And so it just so happened that my first year in Michigan, where I went for grad school, a uh, pizza place burned down just a couple blocks away. And it was really suspicious because it was the end of January. And I think there were actual icicles forming on the fire hose. That was how cold it was. And when it came time for me to kind of rewrite this draft, I, I, I suddenly remember this pizza place burning down. And I looked up the article and I found the name of this fire investigator who had worked on the case. And because she's a government employee, I just, you know, looked her up, found her email, sent her an email, but I wasn't expecting her to reply because, you know, I, I hadn't published anything yet. And I was asking her about 
arson and how to get away with arson. So I just assumed that she would find me kind of freakish and leave me alone. But in fact, she wrote back the same day, met me for coffee. And, you know, I just kind of walked her through the scene. And she said, you know, basically, yes, this is physically possible. And and no, that's uh, absolutely incorrect. And that just took maybe about 10 minutes. And then, you know, we still had coffee to finish. So I just was generally interested in her life and her profession. And I just started asking her questions like a normal person, not really thinking about the book anymore. And actually, the information that I learned from the casual part of the conversation was as important as the fact checking that I had done. And I ended up completely rewriting the scene to add in all of the kind of more general information that she had dropped on me because it was just so fascinating to me. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lillian Lee, and we're talking about her debut novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant. And Lillian, the novel is written from the perspective of a number of different characters. Right, absolutely. So I think that on the practical level, I do tend to get bored very easily. Um, and, and so I think that staying with just one character for, you know, 300 pages and, and three years, I think I would have just been too much of the same for me in some ways. And of course, this is something that could change, you know, with the next book that I write. But that was certainly one of the decisions was I just, you know, tend to be more interested if there are more uh, new things happening. And I think the other thing that I really wanted to touch on was 
the part of the restaurant structure is, and, and people have kind of likened it to like Downton Abbey. There's like an upstairs and a downstairs, right? There's the owners and the family that owns the restaurant, and then there is their employees. And so it didn't feel like I could actually capture the world of this Chinese restaurant without, you know, spending time with both sides of that story, both sides of this world. And so that was uh, definitely something else that made it important for me to to be with multiple characters at multiple times. And also, I think that, you know, the final thing is just, I think, philosophically, I just don't think that you can tell a full story with just one perspective, unless, you know, your point is to tell a truncated, biased, um, you know, distorted story. And so because I wanted to have an almost 360 degree understanding of this world and of this summer, I, I felt that the best way to do that was to be in everybody's head and give every side of the story so that the audience could have a fuller understanding than each of the individual characters. Also, I wanted to talk about the prefix R that some of the characters use when they're addressing other characters. Right. So one of the decisions I made as uh, an Asian-American writer, a Chinese-American writer, was I was going to write for a Chinese-American audience. Um, That was the person, the reader I had in mind. And so I decided not to explain certain things that I thought that uh, most Chinese Americans would already be pretty fluent in. And one of those things is awe, which uh, basically what it is, is um, it's, you know, kind of just like a sign uh, that people are close in a familial way. So if you're feeling like, you know, someone, you're feeling brotherly towards somebody, right? If, if we we became really good friends and I felt really close to you, I would just say, Anil, you know, that that would be a way, a gesture. In the same way that in French, you know, you go from the formal vous to the informal too, that's what kind of the awe, you know, moniker really means. It just means I feel close to you. You're like my brother. You're like my sister. In fact, you know, one of the characters, uh, Nan, she at one point does go by awe Nan, but then she is in this now manager position. And so all of these uh, waiters and waitresses that she's been working with for 30 years who used to call her on Nan now refer to her as Nan because she is in this powerful position over them. She's no longer one of them. And so in some ways, the use or lack of use of awe was another way for me to indicate, you know, how power was working and, and who felt like they were on the same level and who weren't. So it's it's definitely, you know, evoking this idea that when you work in a restaurant with people, you feel bonded like a family. Uh, but also that maybe unlike a family or not more transparently than in a family, uh, there are hierarchies of power. And, and once you move up that rank, you know, that, that family feeling dissolves. I want to talk about some of the central characters and, and particularly a couple of the relationships. So let's talk about Jimmy and Johnny. Uh, so Johnny is the older brother, kind of the golden child of the family. Uh, Jimmy is the younger brother, the black sheep, uh, and they have a fairly archetypal sibling rivalry between them. And at the same time, in many ways, they they want the same thing, which is respect and dignity. They just have different ways of going about it. So what Johnny wants is he thinks that by preserving the Beijing Duck House, which is, after all, such a popular neighborhood establishment, and by kind of elevating the Beijing Duck House, he can find the dignity and the respect that his family, this restaurant himself, 
has always wanted. And Jimmy, on the other hand, believes that, you know, basically screw the Beijing duck house. There's no respect in the food that it's serving, the uh, building that it's in, the neighborhood that it's in, all of it, you know, should be just thrown out. And what he wants to do is completely start over with a, you know, a swanky restaurant in, you know, Washington, D.C. proper on the Georgetown waterfront serving Asian fusion food, you know, his understanding of what is elegant and hip and respectful. Um, and and they, uh, they kind of clash and uh, those sort of different ambitions in many ways is the engine for, for the story. And I wanted to talk particularly about the relationship between Nan and R. Jack. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I mentioned earlier that when I had worked briefly in a Chinese restaurant, one of the things that really struck me was I was seeing relationships between my coworkers that didn't feel like they had any real parallels outside of the restaurant that, for example, I would see somebody uh, just like screaming at their top of the lungs at somebody. And then the next minute they're, they're laughing, they're joking. I just like had never seen sort of such extremes within a relationship. And, um, and there was also the sense that, you know, these were people who, if they weren't stuck in a restaurant together, would never be friends, would have nothing in common with each other. And yet, because of all the years they've shared in this very specific place, they they have this bond that, you know, no one outside the restaurant can understand. So Nan and Ajak was, uh, writing them was my attempt to kind of capture the uniqueness of how an environment shapes relationships and, and how, you know, certain relationships can only exist within certain environments. And so I think at one point, you know, Ajak is ruminating about his relationship with Nan and, and he says that, you know, their relationship is kind of like outer space. Like there are just no boundaries, there's no limits, there's no rules or categories that just defies everything. And so I, I really wanted to explore a little bit more about all the just the different kinds of relationships there can be because it sometimes it just feels like there are such tight categories you're a friend or your lovers or your boyfriend girlfriend or you're married and and in fact I think that relationships are a lot more fluid than that and certainly within this restaurant context it, it shows how relationships can be so strange and, and so special. It's also a novel about the generation divide between this family yeah, so I, I think that, you know, certainly definitely one of the tropes of, of writing uh, immigrant narratives is to explore the gaps between generations and the barriers between generations. And I think that um, I certainly wanted to explore that as well. And I wanted to, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in uh, about this uh, restaurant world is that, you know, ostensibly the people who are working in this restaurant are doing it in order to, you know, support their family and to give their family something that they themselves cannot have. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, complicate that because I thought that, you know, if that can't be the only story, it, it can't always be about parental sacrifice. You know, what if parental sacrifice, you know, exists as a sacrifice for the child, but also in some ways is uh, also serving the parent themselves. And so, uh, for example, Nan and Pat, you know, have a very strained relationship because Nan is always at work. She's a single mother, so she has really no time at all to see her son. And, and ostensibly it's so that she can you know, put a good roof over his head. But, you know, at the same time, what Pat really wants and what he really needs is his mother to be around. And so one of the things that, you know, they certainly struggle with as that generational gap is uh, not quite understanding what the other person needs. Um, and then, you know, kind of more specifically with Johnny and Annie, 
I think Johnny at one point thinks about how his how his daughter might see the Beijing Duck House and how she might scoff at it, but he sees it as kind of this beacon of the American dream, as this you know proof that his family、um, has been able to do good within the community, do good for、uh, for the people that work at the restaurant, and really you know that's his understanding. But again, what Annie is understanding is that her father seems to care more about the restaurant and the family name than about her. Individually and personally, and so I just wanted to kind of, you know, complicate the generational gap narrative and to add different stories in there. So, so I think that the multi generational aspect is still, you know, the desire to connect and also desire to escape,、um, and I think that's written into into both those pairings. Often, for an, an immigrant community, there's a You know, a difficulty in getting money, loans from banks and things. So there's often a, a sort of central godfather figure, and in and in this novel, there's Uncle Pang. Can you tell us something about him and his role in the story?、Uh, I think that you know why I wrote Uncle、uh, Pang into this narrative is, in fact, to you know. One of the things that we talked about earlier is, you know, the myth of the restaurant and the myth that this restaurant perpetuates. And part of that myth is this idea of the American dream that one, if one just works very, very hard and and has a certain level of talent and know-how and savvy,、uh, you can suddenly make millions within one generation.、Uh, but in fact, I think that behind any story of that fast growth and that. Quick、uh, success, immigrant or not,、uh, I think it always originates with、uh, a kind of original sin and original crime. And so I, I wrote Uncle Pong in to kind of give a specific example of how, even though it seems like this Chinese restaurant created this huge profit out of nowhere, it still came from a you know kind of a dark crime underbelly because、uh, it's just not possible to suddenly get so much resource when you start out with nothing. And so I think it, that、uh, was less about you know the immigrant experience, less about the、um, Chinese American experience, and, and simply just about you know what the myth of the American dream is. To finish it off, please, can I get you to read some of the novel? Yeah, absolutely. So、um, I can read a little bit from chapter two and. All you need to know about this、uh, passage is that、um, it features Nan and Ah Jack.、Uh, so in the present day, Nan is in her fifties, Ah Jack is in his seventies,、uh, and they have been working at the Beijing Duck House for thirty years together. But from where I'm reading from, this is actually a flashback scene, and so we're getting really the the first time, pretty much、uh, the first summer that Nan and Ah Jack meet each other, and they don't actually meet. At the Beijing Duck House, they meet at a、uh, a failing vegetarian restaurant、uh, called the Mayflower, and that's pretty much where I'll be reading from. Is they they've met and and now they they've become friends. Love came slowly, as weaknesses in the body often do. At first, Nan merely looked forward to coming to work for a chance to chat with a good-humored man. Not many patronized the Mayflower, leaving the two to talk and graze on the wonton chips meant for the soups. She started making note of what brought him pleasure: a fresh apple pie from McDonald's, candied cherries from behind the bar, the sound of a wine cork popping. The list grew. What did Ajak yearn for? A winning horse, new work shoes, less rain so that the fallen magnolia petals along his driveway might not rot so soon. Nan's memory became overstretched. Driving home one night, she nearly cried from frustration because she couldn't remember what Ajak had named as his favorite childhood candy. Finally, she pressed against the tender place she'd been ignoring and stood back, aghast but not surprised, to witness the crumbling edge of her reason. 
Her imagination began and ended with Ajak. He was a good man, but not strong. He liked drinking and candy and gambling. In a single plastic sleeve in his wallet, he kept a picture of his wife and a jumble of lucky number slips. Only a pair of faded eyes peeped out the confetti. In her wallet, Nan carried just $20, which would last her the entire week. She hated wastes, napping, and overeating. At home, she reused the same bowl and utensils for every meal, washing the set once, right before bed. So to fall in love with a man who threw away watermelon with pink meat still clinging to the rind, it was incomprehensible. But she could no longer ignore the heat and breeze of his passing body at work. The space between them when they stood side by side turned electric, raising the small hairs on her skin. One day, he pushed his hands against the crown and base of her spine to correct her posture, and she went to stand in the walk-in freezer, plunging her trembling hands into the bucket of frozen dumplings until her entire body shivered. For four months, before the owner's children replaced the entire staff for the summer, Nan lived in a feverish state of alertness. She imagined living like this forever and felt no fear. On their last day of work, she moved sluggishly, unable to picture herself leaving the restaurant and Ajak for good. Her aunt had found her a job as an assistant to a loan officer, which paid less but could, her aunt claimed, lead to a real career, or at least a chance to sit down at work. On that last Mayflower night, as Nan and Ajak walked toward the exit at the end of dinner service, Nan asked him to join her for a drink. The Earl, he said, just a few shops down. She hadn't had a bar in mind. Yes, she said, that's the one. She spent the $10.60 in her wallet on a bright blue cocktail that stained her tongue and made her legs sweat over the wooden booth. She was barely 22, old enough to understand that a gambling man with a sweet tooth could love a sick wife and cheat on her also. Soft as he was, Ajak wasn't a nervous man. He never fiddled, as Nan did, and he would tease her about the trail of shredded paper napkins that followed her around the restaurant. At the bar, he passed her each of his emptied beer bottles so that she could tear the wet labels off the brown glass. You're unlike anyone I've ever met, Nan said, after draining her last cocktail. She stared at the label she was stripping. You probably haven't met enough people, Ajak laughed. I'm ordinary. Maybe to others, she said but not to me. Ajak circled his thumb around the mouth of his bottle. I suppose that's all that matters, he said. He flagged down their waitress and asked for the check. But before Nan could panic, he asked, you find a new job yet? No, she lied. But there are Chinese restaurants everywhere. There's a new one opening in Rockville. The rumor is that tips will be high from the start. If you can hold off working for a few weeks, they're hiring in July. Is that what you'll be doing? Before Ajak answered, Nan felt a familiar blooming sensation in her chest, followed by a cold sweat on the bottoms of her feet. This ugly, jittery thing had trailed her her entire life, pushing her to dream, pushing her to come to this foreign place. But she had fought so hard to do away with this feeling. Yet when Ajak said he would be first in line to interview at the Beijing Duck House in July, she couldn't stop herself. She allowed hope back into her life. We might carpool, he said, if you decide to work there, on Nan. She had a job lined up, a chance at life outside a restaurant with weekends and vacations. Why follow someone blindly? And not a man of caliber or character, not a man she might ever possess, but Ajak, a man with awe preceding his person, like an opaque veil drawn across his body. And she was Adnan to him. She nodded right as their bill came. Call me Nan, she said in English. She counted out the bills to pay her part of the check. She didn't dare look at him at least until we're comrades in arms again. Nan, he said, drawing out her name. 
She met his eyes through the messy wisps of hair that fell short of her bun. A bridge materialized between them, transporting secret packages that would never reach their destinations. Too soon, she looked down again. I've been talking to Lillian Lee about her debut novel, Number One Chinese Restaurant, which is just out in paperback in the UK from One, an imprinter of Pushkin Press. Lillian, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.